Hello and welcome to another episode of The Double Pivot, the podcast where watching football for 12 hours is a job and we won't hear differently. We are a new podcast on the Howler Radio Network, and I am Michael Cayley. Joining me on the line is Mike Goodman, who is a completely separate person. How's it going, Mike? Hey, Cayley. How are you? Uh, We are now officially on iTunes with our own feed. You can subscribe and leave us comments, which I am told is a thing that is important for podcasts. Uh, We are either now or will shortly be up on Google Play and Stitcher, and feel free to find us with any other listening methods that you might prefer, and we will endeavor to get up on them as well. Uh, The music you heard as we faded in is from the Whalers, and on the other side of the virtual glass is our producer, Max, who we have been criminally negligent about thanking to date. Thank you, Uh, Max. Thank you, Max. Uh, Also, if you have any complaints about sound quality, it's Max's fault. (laughs) It's really not. You would be surprised at the degree we've messed these things up as we've started. Okay. um, Before we get started, I just want to say that we are kicking off the show today with something that isn't directly on the soccer field and is somewhat more serious. Uh, The back two-thirds of the show will be our usual on-the-field tomfoolery, and now I'll throw it back to Kelly to get us started. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of why we want to talk about, you know, serious major issues on this show at times and how we're going to think about it. Um, I want to be clear, this is not going to turn into a podcast where I'm breaking down turnout rates in South Florida and Mike is looking at, like, the game theory of legislative change. This is a football podcast. But that raises the question of what does it actually mean to talk about football? Because there isn't like this hermetically sealed space in society where sport exists, and it's separate from the rest of our lives, the rest of our loves, our communities, our politics, and our societies. And, And in fact, one of the reasons that I love sports, one of the reasons I love talking about sports, is that sports fandom, it's this necessarily social thing. We follow sports by sort of attaching ourselves, by connecting to these teams, to these groups. And we form communities. And the experience of sports, I think, is indissociable from those communities. And so we can't ignore the intersection of sports and politics. If we did that, we'd fail to do justice to what's going on in sport. Um, and, And as I'll say, I think this is particularly necessary in relation to issues around sports related to sexual violence and rape. Um, So there was a story that broke earlier this week, and the story is about the prosecution of a man in Spain, a man uh, who's like a porn uh, site operator, entrepreneur named Torbe, and he's accused of a list of crimes, including rape and what's called human trafficking, slavery. This is including of minors. Um, And... Recently, and this got linked to football because recent linked testimony included accusations from survivors of Torbay's violence that some Spanish footballers had paid Torbay to procure women whom he sold against their will and that some Spanish footballers had, had raped them. Um, the story here is fundamentally not a story about uh, David De Gea or Iker Munian, two of the players who were named. Um, this is a story about the women who were raped and abused and are fighting back through this legal case. And so we're not, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the men, the players here. That, that's not the story. Um, but I think it, this is why it's precisely so important to do justice to this story in the context of sports. Um, in media this week, we saw discussions 
of whether the Spanish team would band together after these accusations. Maybe they would play better at the Euros. We saw on social media, fans, especially those of, um, of Spain, of Manchester United, um, claiming that they, they respected De Gea more after how he handled the accusations. And I think this, th- th- these things are, are bad. Um, and I think this is what happens when you act like sports are the primary story here, when you try to just do sports, not in relation to larger issues of rape and sexual violence in the world. You treat those accusations of rape, what we saw in those stories, they're treating accusations of rape sort of as a dubious sideshow. And I think that that contributes to a larger social environment which is conducive to rape, which enables these acts to continue happening in our society. And so I think this is particularly important. It's important to talk about these things right in general, and it's important to talk about these things right in relation to sport. Because, again, we're talking about clubs and national teams which depend on communities of fans for support and which communities of fans are constantly engaging with and emotionally invested in. We know from survey data, and this varies from a number of different sources, this is from the CDC, about 20% of women, about 2% of men have been raped. So when teams, when commentators fail to take these stories seriously or dismiss allegations out of hand, they're sending a signal to members of that community, people who love these teams, who this is just what they do for fun, that they are not equal members of these communities, that their stories are not being heard, are not being respected. And this is why I think taking this story seriously in relation to sport is particularly important. Um, and so we've been, we've been talking about doing this segment since last Friday when the news broke and Callie and I have been going back and forth about what, what we wanted to say in relation to it. And and then of course, Sunday morning, there was, um, the horrible tragedy in Orlando, um, where 50 members, 50 people at a gay nightclub were murdered. And... This is not a sports story at all, obviously. It's only a sports story in so much as it's a story that to some degree affects everybody. Um, And part of how many people cope with tragedy, either directly in their own lives or in their general community, is sports. Is whether it's just 90 minutes of distraction, whether it's it's leaning on members of the communities they've built. Um, I know... Certainly, in my own life, my you know my personal life, growing up, uh, for tragedies both very personal and very broad in general, sports have been part of my coping mechanism, and they're part of a lot of people's coping mechanisms. And as I knew we were talking about this, I couldn't help but think all day on Sunday about the numbers of people that I was seeing say in relation to what happened in Orlando that they were thankful that they were going to take a couple of hours and watch sports because that, that's what makes them happy. And I also couldn't stop thinking about the ways in which some members of these communities have to pay a bigger price for that type of release and that type of catharsis and that others don't. That if you're a survivor of sexual assault, you, you pay a price for investing in sports. If you're a survivor of domestic violence, you pay a price when you invest in sports. You invest in sports despite knowing that your experiences may very well be demeaned while you are investing in sports. And this is true for broader groups as well. This is true for, you know, 
women, members of the LGBTQ community, uh, people of different faiths, people of different backgrounds and ethnicities that are that are asked to pay either a big or a small price for investing in the good that we all believe sports brings, both the actual on-the-field stuff and the communities. And so I think it's important to both of us as we do this podcast that we address these these very substantive issues, that we talk about them, but that we talk about them in ways where we try really hard to not make people that want to invest in sports pay a price for it. Um, this will not be the last time that we feel compelled to talk about issues, I'm sure. We don't want to do it a lot. I mean, I think we want to be talking about sports. That's why we have this podcast. But I also don't think that either of us are naive enough to think that we won't be back here at some point. So this is our approach. Um, We address it. We address it in the context of sports, but not subordinate to sports. Um, We give it the seriousness it deserves. And then we go on to the rest of our show. So as as we discussed, um, you know, sports are a can be a great way to sort of decompress, to get enjoyment from life and from the great things that humans can do. And that's what we want to keep doing on this podcast. And we want to move on right now to talking about talking about football in the, in the nerdy way that we talk about football. And the Euros kicked off this week. We've had a few uh, of the first games And there was some fantastic stuff that happened. And what we want to do is some of the stuff that we've looked at with the Copa. What do you you know? What do you learn from watching 90 minutes of football? How, what kind of conclusions can you draw? So Mike, would you say that England are terrible and France are probably something of a mess? Yeah, it's a wide open field. We have no idea what's going to happen. No. Um, I think, uh, let's, let's start with France since they kicked off first. Um, France, they won. They won 2-1 on a gorgeous uh, last-minute, almost last-minute, left-footed screamer from Dimitri Payet. Uh, It was a wonderful moment. He broke down in tears shortly later as he was being subbed off. It was just, from an emotional, cathartic sports standpoint, it was a very memorable moment. Everything you want in that game, yeah. Uh, It also happened because France and Romania were tied at one eighty-five minutes into the game, and that's worth talking about. Um, we were both very excited to watch a midfield of Blaise Matuidi, Paul Pogba, and N'Golo Kante. Uh, I think we both had reasonable concerns about how they might all play together, but we both sort of thought that they are all so good they will figure it out. I think it's fair to say after one match they have not yet figured it out. Um, I think yep. there were some sort of specific tactical things that would concern me. Um, I thought that both fullbacks got isolated defensively because none of those three midfielders particularly like to play in wide areas. Neither of the two wide forwards, Pyatt, uh, who was most effective centrally, and Antoine Griezmann, who is more of a forward than a wide player, neither of them particularly tracked back on the wings. So if they didn't have possession, that became an issue. Um, And they just didn't dominate possession in a way that, you know, everything sort of got to be flowing downhill and playing to their strengths. 
Yeah, I think that uh, from what I saw, it looked like, um, and the other thing to note here is that if that midfield isn't firing on all cylinders, especially as a sort of defensive unit, especially as us looking for that to be sort of, you know, six people instead of three covering ground, that leaves France's back line, which I think everyone has agreed going into this tournament is their weakness, leaves them underprotected. Um, yes, well, I think poor, uh, the- poor Adel Rami, right? Uh, poor right. Adel Rami. Uh, poor France, because they have to play Adel Rami. He was, <laughs> he was not good at all. Um, he was a problem. Yeah, he was he was a problem, and it's the kind of thing where when your young fullback is thirty two, it does not help that it does not help that problem. It exacerbates that problem. Yep, and 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 it also forces Laurent Koscielny to be the sort of more uh, the, the the more reserved center back when he's when he's at his best breaking up play. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it all too. sort of created problems. What it looked like to me was that N'Golo Conte basically was the single pivot instead of the triple pivot, or as was suggested on, on Twitter, the trivet. Um, <laughs> we really saw N'Golo Conte at the base of midfield. He was the one who was who was covering it in wide areas at times. And Pogba and Matuidi, Pogba had um, just one tackle and one interception all match. Um, he He... He was sort of the outball in possession. He was useful in that sense of sort of starting possession. He had a number of ball recoveries. But for the most part, he was not that present defensively. Matuidi was okay, but again was staying centrally. And this left a lot of space open that wasn't being defended as well as we expected. Yeah, it's I it's think not it's surprising th- that Romania came up with several good chances. Yeah, and I think it's telling that... Um, Pogba and Griezmann, who were probably the two most touted young French stars coming in, were both subbed off the field. And, look, you can argue that maybe you could have taken Matuidi off instead of Pogba, but I don't think that they were bad substitutions. Uh, They were mildly surprising substitutions, but certainly... um, Given the flow of the game, ones that were, you know, very justifiable and it ended up with Pogba moving explicitly into the center as opposed to just coming to the center from one of the wings. And he was fantastic. He was he was clearly France's best player, even before scoring the game-winning goal. Uh, every Creatively, everything ran through him, uh, which is not necessarily what you expect when Paul Pogba is one of your three midfielders. And it worked. Yep. I mean, I th- when, I he was, when he was conducting, it worked. It was three three quarters of France's expected goals were either assisted or attempted by Payet. He he was everything for them. Um, but it, it creates an interesting problem, which is that as we saw, Payet really wants to play as an attacking. He's really a ten, and when you play him as a wide forward, what you get is another attacking midfielder. And but if you try to move him into the center, do you play three midfielders and Payet? It's 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 a complicated tactical issue that. Um, yeah, you know, I had looked be... at that lineup, and I had said, there's a pretty decent um, midfield diamond behind two strikers in that lineup, where um, if you... The problem with that, though, is that they don't have athletic fullbacks. And so, if you're explicitly playing Pyatt at the 10 with Matuidi and Pogba sort of as the shuttlers and Kante as the the holder... I mean, I guess you could also play Matuidi as the holder and, and Conte as It's slightly interchangeable. But you can put those four players in a diamond in midfield, but then you need width. And they, you know, Patrice Evra and Bakary Sanya, for all of the 
know-how that they have, although I'm not entirely sure where Patrice Evers' know-how was when he stuck his knee into you know a Romanian player's hip. Well, um, the ball was above their heads. Yeah, it was it was one of the odder um, one of the odder and most obvious penalties you'll see. Um, but so they are not going to be primary with providers. Uh, if you had younger, uh, more athletic, bigger engine fullbacks, you could potentially tweak the system in that way. If they had Kyle Walker and Danny Rose, they'd be they'd they'd be they'd be amazing. Right there we go. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Look, this is. Three points is three points. France are going through. It's not going to be... That's not the issue. The issue is, when you're talking about favorites for the tournament, this is a little hiccup, and you need to see over the next couple of group stage games, when they still have the time and space to experiment, um, how they're going to fix that. Um, Because they're not going to hit peak... um, They're not going to hit peak performance if they don't iron that out, I think. Right. This this isn't let's freak out about France. This is let's watch the next 180 minutes of France playing football and see what they do about these problems because they are there. There's the talent is still there, but these are things that need to be figured out. All right. Okay. So now let's move on to everybody's favorite team to freak out about in general, and that's England. Um, yep. Clearly, an, an an incredibly disappointing performance. They couldn't even beat Russia. Uh, they're doomed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they played a bunch of Spurs players, and then they lost. Uh, then they, they they failed to take points that they needed. Um, you know, it, it's well, let me let me ask like, you: is 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 the issue maybe that Spurs are Englandy? This is an interesting question. This is an interesting question. It's sort of a, a chicken egg thing. Um, right. Yes. Okay. Obviously, it, we're being tongue in cheek because that's what we do. I, I think both of us think mo- England is mostly fine. Yeah, I, I was I was moving to like a cockerel egg joke. It's it's going to be done <laughs> from that. Um, so basically, yeah, we, we think England are mostly fine. Russia produced basically nothing in that game. The, the you know that 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 set that header that that ended up like somehow parachuting into the goal. It could have been defended better, but this is not a situation where um, England got broken down. Uh, we, 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 I mean, there, there are issues, you know, how well were, uh, you know, England were not able to create very many clear scoring opportunities. Um, Wayne Rooney in midfield was, I thought he played pretty well, but I think you could also see from that game ways which he might not play pretty well against a different opponent. Exactly. In established possession, Wayne Rooney is a very useful midfielder. Um, in transition, it's much less obvious and Russia never played in transition. So it worked out, um, yeah, I, I I think the the goal they conceded right at the end is is a little interesting because as you said, it wasn't a great chance, um, but it also could have been defended better. And I think that that's a really important point. Look, England made a mistake there. There was a miscommunication or a gap between uh, Chris Smalling and Danny Rose because Rose was pos- positioned internally to Smalling on the set piece, and then it was a 10 to 15 second run of play after the set piece and Smalling went back to the middle and Rose sort of drifted back to the left back position. And it seemed not entirely clear whether they were transitioning back into their open play defense or whether they're supposed to be maintaining their set play setup. It's a mistake. Teams make tons of mistakes every game, both sides. Very few of those mistakes are actually punished by goals. Um, little mistakes, big mistakes, huge mistakes. Everybody makes those degrees of mistakes. Um, 
And it takes a lot of things to go right to capitalize on that mistake. Um, so, yeah, England defensively, for the most part, were pretty good in terms of what they gave up. The question is, how much of that do we want to credit England and how much of it is just Russia were, for the most part, really dire? Yeah. It was it was a it was a poor performance for Russia. Again, it's it's hard to know what to take from this. Um, other than that, Eric Dyer is possibly the best midfielder in the universe. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I mean th- that that's a clear conclusion we can draw. But otherwise, I, th- I think there's a lot of wait and see with England. I think that there's very little reason to freak out, especially because England still can easily go through um, and, and, and can easily, easily win the group. Yeah. Um, right. I don't think there was anything in this game that makes you reevaluate um, their priors, your priors on them. That makes you say, oh, I thought this, but now I'm going to think this other thing, right? I think everything about it was, uh, okay, the result wasn't great, but uh, to quote Dennis Green, uh, England are what we thought they were, um, to my mind anyway. Um and yep. so let's let's uh, move on to the other big team that was that was playing this weekend, and and that was Germany. Um, we thought Germany they were really good, and they were really good. That, that... yeah, Germ- Germany seemed like I mean, look, uh, Ukraine gave them a pretty good game, especially in the first half. It was open. Um, Ukraine had some very good chances. Uh, Jerome Boateng had perhaps the best clearance off the line you will ever see. Uh, like the kind of thing where you just sort of want to credit him with a goal, right? Like you feel like the stats for the rest of time should have like Jerome Boateng scored a goal because that's the degree of swing he was responsible for in that play. Um, and so I think Germany were maybe, if I was looking for like things to pick at, um, that game was really open in the first half. Uh, and it's not, it's not entirely clear to me that in the first half, it was as open as Germany wanted it that open and that Germany on balance had the better chances, but they also walked out of the half with a one, nothing lead. And then they shut the game down in the second half. Yeah. I I thought that second half performance from Germany was very peak Spain. Yeah. It was very controlled possession, very, just take the entire air out of this game. Uh, And that, I mean, that worked and that, that worked tremendously well. Yeah. And, and Ukraine were just, Ukraine didn't really have the opportunities to attack, they got counterpressed out of any chances, and when they finally did try to throw numbers forward, Germany attacked and finished clinically. Um, so yeah. I, I think I think one one thing we can maybe take away from this is that Germany looked like one of the most terrifying teams in this tournament with a lead. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a good place to start. And I mean, I think the other thing to highlight is their strength on set pieces. I mean, we talked about it a little bit in the preview, um, where they play that that third center back at one of the fullback positions to you know, give them more heft, more height, more, you know, big bodies because they don't have a particularly big attacking core. And sure enough, it was Mustafi who who scored the goal off the set piece, right? Um, And the the thing that I I said this on Twitter at the time, I don't think we talk enough about how big an advantage having a pure striker, both left-footed and right-footed, standing over a free kick is. It makes it much harder for the defense to anticipate what you're doing, uh, and both you know both Ozil and Cruz can put it on a platter from anywhere on the field, and so you've got them both standing over a free kick from the right side with 
three big targets or four big targets to shoot at, uh, that's a really tall task for any team in the tournament to defend. But I don't, I don't see like I don't. I mean, <laughs> to me, that's it for the game. I think maybe you can say actually like watching that game. Hey, I feel pretty good about Ukraine. Maybe moving through from that group. Um, like it, it is a testament to how good we think Germany is that. Ukraine could lose two nothing, really not be in the game in the second half, and we still walk away, maybe feeling slightly better about them than we did coming into the game. Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking of uh, slightly odd, maybe a little bit uncomfortable, good feelings. Um, <laughs> what are we thinking about uh, the United States men's national team? Who yes, are let's switch over to Copa America. The quarterfinals, the Copa America. All right. So the U.S. had not only going to the quarterfinals, they won the group. Um, the U.S. had a feel-good performance, (laughs) without a doubt. Um, it was tough, hard-fought, down a man for almost the entire second half, you know, grittily holding on to a one, you know, a one-goal lead against Paraguay. I think the, the, the combination of resolve and success was extremely gratifying to fans of the team. And to the team itself, if you if you uh, look at the post game comments, if you read some of the post game stories, I think everybody in that room was talking about their grit and their resolve and their heart and just you know getting stuck in and getting a performance. Uh, all of that is very satisfying. All of that does not mean that they were necessarily good in that game. Yep. I mean, o- over the course of uh, the group stage, the U.S. created about as many expected goals as they conceded. Um, they, they, they've, they conceded only one goal from open play while conceding about three expected goals. So these are things that are unlikely to continue. The performances were fine. The performances were mostly against teams that were not that great. As we saw, I mean, Colombia getting beaten by Costa Rica. They got beat a bit by Costa Rica's finishing, but it was also a, a, a signal that this Colombian team really also hasn't shown that much through three matches. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, and also, certainly if you listen to uh, Colombia's manager, they didn't necessarily play that much better than Colombia in that match. Um, they had a lot of things go their way. Uh, they also didn't play that much. They didn't play that much worse than Colombia or that much better than Costa Rica. Um, the, the score lines both ways were exaggerated. So the U.S. was okay in what was supposed to be a difficult group. So you, you certainly you're not um, devastated by that, um, but it's not some sort of miraculous occurrence for the the team, right? It's not some sort of, they came together, the level of their play increased, they found the magic formula, and everything is fine. It's, uh, they played three games that were relatively close, and the results went their way. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, that's what a lot of tournament soccer is. Um, And it's a darn sight better than the Gold Cup last summer, where they were legitimately bad. Right, and this I think is 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 the context that makes the good feeling sort of happen and also feel sort of weird, which is that it's not just the Gold Cup. The U.S. was bad in the Gold Cup. Then the U.S. was dominated by Mexico in the Confederations Cup playoff, and then the U.S. very nearly crashed out of uh, of World Cup qualifying before even getting to the hex. So what we saw from the U.S. now it wasn't that great, but like there was a moment of crisis that the United States men's team hit, and that seems to be gone 
now do we feel good that the crisis is over and the U.S. men's team just hasn't progressed much? Or, you know, it's, 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 again, I think it's about your baseline. It's about what you're expecting from this team. If you're expecting a sort of a hardworking team that is good in CONCACAF and, you know, can do some exciting things and is goofy sometimes, you know, that, 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 and that, that's pretty fun for a fan. You know, it, it, if you have those expectations of the U.S. really moving up that soccer ladder, we're not seeing that. But let's, but, okay, let's talk about this for a second. Because in the Bob Bradley era, hard-fought, get-stuck-in victories against okay opponents were normal, right? They were the standard. And the U.S. Federation, and really a lot of U.S. soccer fandom decided that wasn't good enough, right? That we needed to move on to Jurgen Klinsmann to do something. What that something is, I think years later we still don't necessarily know. But it seems to me that it was pretty much exactly performances like Paraguay that led us to the us led the US to the decision to move on from Bob Bradley. And now, years later, a similar performance and it's being celebrated, and rightfully so. And I guess the question is is it just a sign of boy, this team was really in trouble before that match? Or is it is it just sort of fandom's grass is always greener? That when you're getting stuck in passionate, mediocre results, all you want to do is play pretty. And when you're trying to play pretty and failing at it, all you want to do is get stuck in mediocre results. Um, I don't know the answer to that, uh, but that's uh, that's that is my that was sort of my reaction. Was if the team we want, if the team fans want, if the team the federation wants is one that does what they did against Paraguay, then I don't really understand why Jurgen Klinsmann is the guy to do that. <laughs> um, if, hey, look, if this is just the baseline and we expect it to go better and further and you know more dynamic from here and we're just sort of rebounding off a bad stretch, all right, that's fine. Um and since it appears that the U.S. Uh, sure, the U.S. doesn't have to play Brazil in the next round, uh, it looks at least like they've got a chance of putting a little bit of a run together here. So, yeah, that's it's, encouraging. it's this weird kind of thing. Like the, the U.S. could could easily ride getting stuck in and working hard and doing those things to a semifinal, and it's a, it's, a, it's a real international tournament um, in in most senses, and <laughs> it would be it would be it would be a semifinal of that, that and that would be cool. And I I think that like. You know, I, I don't want to be really down. I, I, I feel I feel like I feel like a little bit weird trying to find ways to be down on making the semifinal of international tournament, even as it won't make me think that this U.S. team has gotten that much better. Yeah, it's, it's just, just really weird cool. because U.S. fandom has found ways to be down of you know making the final of the Gold Cup every two years. <laughs> I mean, that's U.S. You know, U.S. fandom has found a way to be down out of it being. You know, it, it advancing out of the group stages at the World Cup consistently now, <laughs> which is something that like, very few teams in the world do. Now, granted, we've never gone further than that, and maybe you want a higher variance, but then there's all these things. But maybe it's the sign of the U.S. maturing into a grown-up soccer nation that they fandom 
finds ways to be down about a lot of things about the U.S. team that might not be warranted. Someday we could be England. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, some, someday, someday we too can give away a fairly soft goal in the dying minutes of the opening game of a tournament to throw away two points. Okay. Well, I'm sure we will be visit, revisiting the U.S. Uh, either in post-mortem or... Oh, we won't be doing... We won't be doing it next time. We'll be doing it two times from now because they play on Thursday. Yeah. We will, in fact, probably be recording. We will either be recording while they play or right after they play. That'll be interesting. That could be fun. Okay. Um, let's move on to Argentina. Yeah. So, so uh, that, 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 there's, that, there's been this guy who's been in world football for a while, and like not a lot of people in following him. It's sort of it's sort of a small story, but he, it's this clean shaven guy named Lionel Messi, and he's been scoring goals at a pretty good rate. People have been noticing him. He's, you know, he's worn some really funky suits. You've probably seen him on social media a little bit. Um, But in their last game, Argentina debuted a player who is bearded Lionel Messi, and he scored like 18 goals in four seconds, I believe. Um, It was was um, pretty impressive. That that checks out. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you know, we're the stats nerds. That has to be true. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was <laughs> messy. Messy with the beard was really good. <laughs> I mean, look, the by the time he came in, the, the Argentina was up a man, and, and and their game was over. But he still scored three goals in like warp speed time, and it was awesome. Um, Argentina. I don't think we learned anything new other than that. Yeah, they're 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 really good, and as everybody else, well, I, I guess Brazil also seems good. But I don't. I don't think there's. I don't think there's any reason to look at this tournament as, as anything other than clearly Argentina's to lose, especially given that Messi does not appear to be suffering any long-term uh, non-beard-related injuries after his his layoff. Yeah. But speaking of injuries, uh, it appears I, I that Angel Di Maria will never complete international. Yes. I, I, I apparently my writing curse uh, transfers over to the podcast, and I. Picking Angel Di Maria as my player that I was really exciting to watch lasted about twenty minutes, maybe. Oh God! Um, so the news is that it, it's a, an abductor strain, I think, something like that. He's going to be out until maybe the finals, which probably means he shouldn't play in the finals, but they may rush him back anyway. Um, right. He was so good for the pre-messy chunk of time um, at doing ab- I mean, basically playing what you would call the messy role right for Argentina right. and like it, and the, the, I mean, it, it's so obvious that getting that that Di Maria and Messi on that team together would complement each other perfectly and have in the past when they Yeah, we've together. seen them do that, right? Yeah. Like we've seen uh Messi is so good, but he's not a wrecking ball, right? He's a surgeon. He slices teams apart very precisely and he can do it with the ball at his feet and he can do it uh moving without the ball but everything is precision um and that's complemented so well by Di Maria just sort of flying all over the place and blowing stuff up uh, yeah but once, not once Di Maria breaks that structure Messi is the perfect person to find the hole that's been left right that's yeah that's a great way to put it uh Di Maria blows stuff up and Messi flits through the hole and scores a goal like that's just what they do, and if it, and when you have the the team structure where they don't have a lot of attackers, it's a perfect dynamic. Um, 
it was exactly that dynamic that got them to the World Cup final, and you could probably argue it was the lack of exactly that dynamic which cost them winning the World Cup final against Germany, um, where they really were unable to create very much against that good German team. Um, but yeah, he just... It seems like every major tournament, Di Maria gets hurt. Um, and it's not like he's, generally speaking, a injury-prone player. He's uh, fairly reliable, I think. Yeah, he, he's put up huge numbers um, o- o- over like, consistently 2,500 minutes. He, I, I did I did a little piece earlier uh, earlier today looking at Mesut Ozil and his expected assist numbers. Uh, Di Maria and Ozil are head and shoulders above everyone else in uh, top league soccer in terms of creating chances and doing it over significant minutes. Um, so it's just, it's just unfair it's just, that he seems to it's not It's just end, end one up of here. those things, I guess, right? Like, I mean, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where you want to attribute everything to a reason, right? You want to say, oh, well, you know, he consistently plays too much football and that's why he gets hurt in summer tournaments. It seems perfectly possible to me. It's just bad freaking luck. Um, which, to bring it back to Messi, is one of those reasons why Messi's never won an international tournament is a really frustrating argument to hear as an argument against Lionel Messi's greatness. Yep. But bearded Lionel Messi... Yeah, um, well, that's he, true! He's headed to be, hey, he's headed for, to one for one. So, so here's a question. Is... Are we going to hear the, the start of... Uh, is unbearded Lionel Messi... Uh, not better than Maradona if bearded Lionel Messi wins this tournament. This is true. That guy, that guy was crap. I mean, he's, he's yeah, sort of a, he's like a like a hipster thing, flash in the pan. Um. All right. Um, I think that is the soccer content we have for tonight. Um, we've watched a lot of soccer in the last few days. Mike, do you have a you have a, a sanity check for us? Have you had time to do anything other than watch soccer? So, um, I really haven't, um, and, and, and as we have, uh, as, as, as we've discussed previously, um, it is, you know, it, it's very important for people who watch lots and lots of soccer as a job or semi-job to, uh, not complain about it, um, but I, I'm definitely getting tired. I definitely did not get into a lot of things. So I decided I would do today is a little bit of discussion of uh, ancient Christianity and gender studies, which is what I did <laughs> in my old life. And so you're going to get a couple minutes on Mary of Magdala. Here we go. So you might know about uh, Mary Magdalene. You've probably seen her on uh, in, in various movies. She's in a Last Temptation of the Christ, and she's the the prostitute. She's she's the she's the she's the prostitute. She's the repentant sinner. She realizes her sin. Jesus saves her, and she follows him. Um, and so she is defined in this sort of Christian narrative, this sort of modern Christian narrative, as the repentant sinner, and particularly the repentant sexual sinner. What's really interesting about that is that's not in the Bible. That is not in the Bible at all. That is an interpretation that was pre- presented first by Pope Gregory the First in the sixth century. Um, Mary of Magdala does show up in the Bible. She is a follower of Jesus's in multiple different Gospels. She is said to receive special in, uh, in, uh, special revelation from him. In particular, she's noted as one of the first people to have an experience of seeing the risen Jesus. What happens is there's one story in the gospel where Mary of Magdala is mentioned, and then in the next story, an unnamed woman who's said to be a sinner 
washes Jesus' feet. This happens in the Gospel of Luke. That, that woman is not Mary of Magdala. But she get, uh, this Pope Gregory in the 6th century turns her into, reads those two stories together, says that Mary of Magdala is the repentant sinner. Um, and in particular, she gets read as a prostitute. And I think what's, what's interesting about this um, is that it appears that, that Mary of Magdala, we don't know too much about her historically, but she became a symbol for women in authority in the early church. There's actually a gospel of Mary um, which which appears to have been written not by people who like you know were like hanging around with her. It was written later, but which used her as an example of why women should be ordained, why women should be apostles or leaders. And so what you see then in this story is that the story of Mary of Magdala, which in the in the earliest period in the first few centuries was a story of women's leadership, gets transformed into a story of a sexual sinner repentant. Um, and that is your three minutes of early Christian history. Feminism. Wow, I was not prepared for that in my sanity check, but we are a full service operation here. Um, I too had time to do very little this week besides uh, watch soccer, write about soccer, think about how I were go- how we were going to talk about difficult subjects relating to soccer on this podcast. Um, so my my sort of outside sanity check this week is something that I wished I had time to consume, but did not. Uh, and that is the o- the O.J. Simpson uh, Made in America documentary that is uh, currently, it's, it's, I think it's eight hours long, all told, when it's, when it's all aired. It's going to be, uh, it's, it's, it was debuted on, the first edition was on ESPN, uh, ABC, and then the rest are going to air on ESPN. And it is, by all accounts, uh, amazing, amazing, uh, I've, I've heard people say things like genre transformative about it. Um, and I guess for a thing I did consume, I will recommend the uh, Linda, Linda Holmes's review of, of the documentary. She uh, writes for NPR. Uh, you can find her at the NPR Monkey C blog. She is on Twitter under uh, at, I think it's at Monkey C or at NP, N, NPR Monkey C. You can Google it. You'll find her. It's easy. Uh, she wrote a tremendous review of the documentary that talked about not only um, the documentary itself, but how it serves as sort of a lens into that period in America's cultural history, um, which I think sounds interesting and fascinating, and I want to watch and will watch when there is not quite so much soccer on TV. <laughs> Um, so that's it for us, uh, tonight. We will be back later this week, uh, after the U.S. do whatever the U.S. is going to do. Yeah, it should be, uh, it should be an emotional time. And, uh, so thank you for listening. We are, remember, we, you can find us on iTunes, give us a review, give us a, uh, give us feedback. We very much appreciate that. And, uh, we will see you very soon.